This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Big show today. Big show. Big, big show. Babe. Huge. Huge, huge show. Um, it is kind of a big story, so I think we're going to get into it right away. That's my way of announcing to you I'm going to get into it right away. None of your small talk, Eric. No, no Don't be banter. bringing up a lot of side issues or... No banter. No, no banter at all. So I don't want to hear about, about your sandwich. And I got to talk about that thing that happened. No, that no. thing that happened or that TikTok Brandon showed us because we're both too old to be on TikTok. Right. Um, we are doing a True Crime TV Club today. And if you're new to our podcast or to True Crime TV Club, we don't do it every week. Uh, you are not remotely required to have seen the show that but we're going to talk about. it seems like we do it every week. <laughs> it feels like it a little bit. You are not remotely required to watch the show. Um, we are going to serve it up for you in such steaming... Or listen to the podcast so you get right down to it. <laughs> steaming detail. <laughs> that you will feel like you've watched the show, and that way if it sounds bad, hopefully we've made it fun. We've made the, we make the bad fun here at the TDPS Network. That's our new brand. I just made it up right here. Um... But we tell you what the show is because we do have some out there who want to go and watch the show. Results or... may vary. Exactly. <laughs> Don't leave out in the sun for extended periods. Um, the show we're talking about today is called Menendez Brothers Misjudged. It's available on Discovery Plus or on the Discovery ID app, which I believe is free and includes yes. commercials. Okay, yes, so if you want to go watch it. You can um, watch it without having to subscribe to Discovery Plus, but... You really should describe Discovery Plus. I'm, we're not paid spokesmen, but God, I love that. If yeah. you have the interests that line up with ours, and we assume that you yeah. do, if home you're improvement, oh my God. true crime, design, yeah, design, just it's really kind of crazy, paranormal shit, great history stuff. Like it's just really all over the map. It's every sort of all of those channels, all sort of bundled into one. I can't. Yeah. And we're not getting any money from them. No. So, we yeah. wish, but if they want to send us some, we would take it. Our P.O. box is right. C-A-S-H-E-R-I-C P-L-Z. Right. Um, <laughs> I left out the four. That's the one. Um, so I picked this for you, Eric Shaw Quinn, Because my this is co-host. something that I have felt since the 90s. I have been yeah. in a bad mood about the way this went. You know, I'm just going to open with this. Okay. If the Menendez brothers were the Menendez sisters, there would be a statue of them on Beverly Green. There they wouldn't go. be in prison. There you go. This is the most shocking miscarriage of justice I maybe have ever seen. And for a long time, you were a lone voice. 
I, you and now you're not. You have been joined by others, even though you've never met them. Right, and as we just were talking about it, um, I'm probably too old to ever meet them because they're on TikTok, and I have no idea how that happens or <laughs> how you participated that. And and and, I've, and I get notes from young people all the time thanking me for staying the fuck out of there. Like, yeah, Graham, yeah, Grandpa, stick to Facebook and leave us alone. You took that over. <laughs> I don't feel like we took over Facebook. I feel like the young people just left Facebook, I think, is what happened. <laughs> but it's kind of... And then maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we took it over. But whatever. But uh, yeah, the TikTok, the, the TikTok generation has rediscovered this. As somebody pointed out, because it was... A lot of it was filmed. A tremendous mm -hmm. part of it was filmed. And so people have been able to actually see the trial who are way too young to have been around. We're probably born after those poor boys were put in prison. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, it, they've formed the opinion I formed. I don't. I do not know how anybody could have looked at this, and in the moment that it happened, and come to any conclusion other than mine. And yet, and yet. Anyway, and we're get into so the it. show get really into, gets yeah. into the new movement, but also how we got here. How we got here, and how our perceptions of crimes have changed between the '90s and wow, now, which I'm was the most you. because we have lived through that change here. Yeah. We are we are old enough to have lived through. Oh it. yeah. That was fascinating. Okay. The the documentary starts with a New York Times reporter in the present named Ezra Marcus. And Ezra Marcus put together an article entitled The New Menendez Defenders. And the reason that he did this is because he was, I guess, in the normal course of doing his job or investigating or trolling for potential pieces, he was analyzing Google Trends. And he came across a staggering amount of Google searches for the Menendez brothers. Right. 700 million total views on the topic of the brothers alone. And I guess that's just video, as you were just saying. Um, this trend, this sort of internet phenomenon, attention, whatever you want to call it, started largely with people sexualizing Lyle and Eric Menendez because when they were um, convicted and when they were arrested and their story first came to light in 1989, they were very handsome, attractive young men. Yes. Rich from Beverly Hills, also played a big role in the perception of them yes. in the medium, but really like could have modeled for a living. So then there was the backlash to the sexualization of the Menendez brothers. This is a really serious story. We shouldn't be reacting around it this way. Right. These, the, the, there's really little dispute that they did literally shotgun their parents in the living room of their Beverly Hills mansion. Even they don't dispute they it. They don't dispute it. But the story gets really complicated. So we're introduced very briefly and in a manner I would describe as a little jagged and disorganized to kind of a troop of young TikTokers who have taken up the cause of the Menendez brothers in their case. There's Nora, who's 16 years old and from the Netherlands. There's Rebecca, who's 28 and originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, Ellie is 15 from the UK. And then we get into a sort of deeper forest of them, and some of them aren't as well identified, and they just sort of pop up in little clips. But this is apparently, yeah. with 700 million hits, this is apparently... A large group. Yeah. And so the, the kind of spine, I think, of the episode was offered by a professor named Dr. Sharon Ross, who's a critical media studies professor at Columbia College, Chicago. And she kind of breaks it all down for us because she analyzes the media and how we talk about things in the media. Right. And she basically says that the entire framework of the Lyle and Eric Menendez case is were they liars or were they not liars? 
There was never any dispute again that they killed their parents. The question was, did they kill their parents out of greed because they wanted to inherit their money, or did they do it because they had been ritually sexually abused for most of their young lives and knew that their mother knew and was doing nothing to stop it? So footage from the trial is examined of them on the internet by these younger people, and the footage is of them testifying specifically about the abuse. And as you have said for years, you have to go to years of acting school to Nobody. deliver a performance. I don't yeah. know anybody who could have carried on because not only is it not, you know, cut, let's retake it, it's hours and hours at a time yeah. of these boys sobbing and weeping and gasping for breath and trying desperately to summon the strength to talk about something that no one else in the world was yeah. talking about yeah. at that moment on camera, knowing that it was going to be on national television. Absolutely. Like, it was an enormous thing. I, as At some point, I think Lyle, during the course of this, says, go back and watch the testimony and decide for yourself. If you yeah. are up in the air or you think they did it, mm -hmm. go watch their testimony. It's available, really, apparently, pretty easily. Um, yeah. And see if you still believe yeah. that these boys are – I mean, nobody is disputing that they're guilty of uh, – but what are they guilty of So is the question. Um, the other sort of companion spine to the – it's not an episode. I should call it a documentary because it's a standalone movie uh, – is a phone interview that the producers conducted with one of the brothers, Lyle Menendez, who is the older of the two. And uh, they've been he's been in prison, in a separate prison from his brother, which yeah. was part of their sentencing. They've only reunited briefly for certain periods, but they're in separate jails. He's down in San Diego, and he talks with the producers over the phone rather extensively about um, the journey that we're all about to go on. And then there's Alan Abramson. Who I hope um, steps in front of a speeding bus. Soon. L.A. Times reporter who was assigned to the trial. Uh, he becomes a voice, let's just say, of the attitude towards the boys in the 90s. Or I would say the crime took place in 1989, and then they underwent two trials, uh, separated by several years inside the 90s. So it's a, I think it's a weird uh, reflection of where we were around crime and sexual abuse and punishment in both of those decades. You know, the 80s and the 90s. Also our yeah. rampant, raging homophobia raging. during the same period. Yeah. Um, so Alan Abramson, along with Sergeant Tom Emmons, who is uh, pops up in a lot of L.A. true crime documentaries, he was a retired. He is a retired detective sergeant from Beverly Hills Police Department who served from 1962 to 2000. So he's touched a lot of cases. They sort of fill in the basic facts of the case, which is that on August 20th, 1989, Lyle places a 911 call and says, "Quote: Someone killed my parents." Which is true. He sounds distraught. He sounds very upset. Um, Sergeant Tom Emmons gets a call from his watch commander telling him there's been a double homicide. The victims are Jose and Katie Menendez, very wealthy couple who lives Kitty. on Kitty, excuse me. I misspelled that. <laughs> got it wrong once and then got it wrong, got it right the second time. Tricked yourself. Yeah, Katie Kitty. No, no, I gotta get that out of my head, or I'll be saying Kitty. it the whole episode. Kitty Menendez. Um, wealthy couple. They live on Elm Drive, Elm Street, excuse me, in Beverly Hills. I think it's one of the nicer streets in the flats. A house there right now would go for $8 million, $10 million easy. Starting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back, whatever the equivalent was back then was what it was. Uh, the scene is grotesque. Uh, Jose has been shotgunned on the couch. 
Kitty has fallen from the couch, I believe, onto her face. They were clearly in the middle of eating berries and cream when the murder happened. And the immediate response is that the young boys might be victims, that this is some sort of hit. Oh, yeah. They were surrounded the place with security. They thought that somebody might be coming back for them. Eric is interviewed. Uh, he is very tearful. Lyle is interviewed. He is described as not being tearful. They say they're at something called the food fair, which I guess was some mall or business. They don't really go I into detail. some sort of food court. Who yeah. knows? And uh, that they then went to the movies. Who remembers? During the killing. Uh, the victim profile reveals that Jose Menendez is, quote, a hard-driving businessman. He had one drive, to make money and be successful. Uh, so the initial theory is this is some business deal gone wrong, or this is some mafia hit. He ran up against organized crime. None of that really seems to pan out, and so the cops lean on the the, uh, the usual wisdom, which says in almost all homicide cases, the perpetrator knows the victim. They dig some into the family's past, and they discover that before they moved to Beverly Hills, they lived in Calabasas, which is today a very trendy upscale area of the valley, San Fernando Valley, made famous by the Kardashians. In 1989, it was not as trendy as it was today. It was a little more isolated, and so not everybody knew what was going on over there, allegedly. Well, it was still just as isolated. It just was, <laughs> wasn't as famous. I think it's the other end of the fucking world. Well, it's not, because what there is more development between us and Calabasas now than I think there was in 1989. Oh, I see what you're That's saying. That's what I meant by isolated. Well, like, yes. It hasn't moved locations. No, it's really a long way from here. <laughs> it's, it's pretty far away, but it's got more um, development, housing, all that sort of stuff. But nobody on this side of the hill knows anything about it. Just the same. <laughs> it's, it's where you go if you want to. Re, if you're in the market for a really big house and you want to pay several million less than you would have to pay a in Beverly lot Hills, less than you'd have so, to pay in Beverly Hills. Okay, so there's there's a uh, there's some criminal intrigue in the family's backstory. The brothers uh, were involved in some burglaries with other youngsters in the area. And the documentary tells us that the decision is made that Eric, the younger of the two, will take the fall because he is a juvenile and there will be his sentencing will be inevitably lighter as a result of that fact. So and he, sealed. Yes. And so he gets a probationary sentence, which includes counseling with a gentleman named Dr. Jerome Ozeal. The family moves to Beverly Hills, where their neighbors, who they didn't really have good relationships with and didn't know, um, know nothing of the story. So this doesn't, this is, the cops had to dig to find this. So they bury it. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we're introduced to a gentleman who's familiar to anyone who is familiar with this story, and that's Dr. William Vickery, and he will become a major player in the actual case later on. But he starts to pop up in present-day interviews. This is the um, part of the story that people have seized on for years, okay? So the day after— This is the part of the story that the prosecutor and the fucking DA's office seized on at the time that they were persecuting these young men, and that's why everybody has this story. People didn't seize on this story. This was what was shoved down their throat by the people who unjustly sent these boys to prison. I still feel pretty strongly you, about You this. really do. You really do. Um, there's a lot to unpack pack here, as people like to say on the internet. The boys spend close to a million dollars of their parents' money right after the death. Eric goes on, goes on a trip to Cancun. Um, news of this spending spree 
leaks, quote unquote. From the, where I wonder. Yeah, I yeah. wonder. I wonder. And also, apropos of nothing, in comparison, there's no, never any comparison given to what their spending habits were before or after this happened right. or how much money they ordinarily would expend in just living their ordinary, very wealthy lives. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Y- yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. So they began to try the boys in the media yes. by leaking def- defamatory and unsubstantiating stories that they won't be able to prove in court, so they don't bring it up there. They just leak it. Yes. We are introduced to Dr. Aisha Ashai. She is a forensic psychiatrist who specializes in evaluating and treating trauma-based disorders, including sexual abuse. She says what I've always thought. I put this right in the notes. They were enjoying their lives after years of abuse, as we're yeah. going to see. I, I like, anyway. Yeah, they went to Cancun. They got themselves yeah. some new clothes, some new jewelry. Knock yourselves out. It's your money. Do whatever you yeah. want to with it. If you wind up, you know, living in an apartment in Santa Monica in a few years, well, that'll be on you too. But nobody else is being persecuted for spending their own money. Um, March 1990, a break comes in the case. A young lady named Judalon Smith contacts the Beverly Hills Police Department, and she says she is the girlfriend of Dr. Jerome Ozeal, who is the therapist the Menendez brothers have been seeing since the burglaries. And she tells the police that Eric confessed to the murders to Dr. Ozeal. Dr. Ozeal, in response to hearing this confession, contacted Lyle Menendez and says, Your brother told me everything. And Lyle, in his words— Which is just how a blackmailer begins their shakedown. Right. And Lyle, in his words, becomes menacing and says he doesn't want anyone looking over his shoulder and controlling him. Which like, is like a black man. Right. <laughs> or an abuser yes. as well. Um, 
He has, so Dr. Ozeal has Judelond, his girlfriend, sit in on the interview that he conducts with both of the brothers. He wires the room during the meeting. That's, nothing sounds fishy there at all. They both confess, and Lyle provides facts that would only be known to the shooters. I assume that was something the police gathered after um, they listened to the After their blackmailer turned over their confidential... uh, doctor-patient sessions to the media. This is a question that I had that I don't think they answered, okay? I think the law of governing psychiatrists is that if your patient says they are going to commit a crime, the confidentiality is over. The medical professional has to alert the authorities. But if they issue a confession to a crime that has already happened, does it also apply? Because if you're dealing with mentally unstable people, you don't know if the confession's delusional or not. You know, like... How is there one law for all psychiatrists in this area? They never, they never address that question, but whatever. Six months after the shootings, the boys are arrested. Something, a, a, a bit of context. I'm just going to pause just for a moment on the same psychiatrist issue. When, the, when he confessed, the psychiatrist did not get in touch with the authorities. He called Lyle. Mm-hmm. That is. That already impugns any motives that the doctor may or may not have. If he really was genuinely concerned about this, Mm -hmm. when Eric confessed, you called the police. But if you're shaking people down and are just a fucking blackmailer, Mm -hmm. then you call Lyle, which Mm -hmm. is what he did. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Just had to put that in That's fine. Um, the con- we're given a context for where Los Angeles, where the, the world, America, and the media was prior to this case going to, to trial. Uh, the Rodney King verdict had just caused the L.A. riots. Um, there, was a, there was really a kind of sense of de- unrest in the city. You hadn't moved here yet. You moved here in 94. This is really— no, The arrest I was, is happening in I 89. I was here. The, the, the arrest happened yeah. in 89, and I moved here in 91. Oh, you moved here in 91. And the first trial is set for July of 93. Okay. The judge allows it to be televised. And this is why we have so much footage for these young people to pour over today. And this was the first celebrity televised murder trial in history. Cable news was all over it. Court TV was the new... I don't even think Court TV is really around anymore. I think they've turned into true TV. Anyway, Court TV was, we're just going to bring you... Gavel to gavel coverage of court cases. Which is the term they apparently invented. Yeah. So this is the first time this has ever happened. So the whole country is riveted by this case because they can be. Uh, This is also before the pre-sex abuse scandals. This is before Tyler Perry went on Oprah and talked about the sexual abuse of men and boys. The country is in a very different place on these issues. So when Lyle and and Eric say we were repeatedly uh, raped and sexually abused by our father, the whole world doesn't really take them seriously. I mean, really, they just and say they're— yeah. one of the prosecutors actually says yes. in court, on the record, mm-hmm. that young men can't be raped. Because they don't have the equipment to be raped. That's what she said, yeah. Actually said that on the record, but that's okay. So yeah. these are a great bunch of people who are just looking for justice. Yeah. So that prosecutor is named Pam Basanich. And along with Lester Corioma, she um, takes the case to, to trial. She lays out the facts about the murder. The question of the case is not are they guilty or innocent. It's whether it's first-degree murder or manslaughter. Right. They did something, and this yeah. is terrible, and it's not okay to shoot your parents. Bad choice. But, yeah, it's 
but this, but first degree, but to prosecute them as the yeah no that was just that was wrong. Um, the details of the crime are this: Jose is shot four times. He dies instantly. Kitty is hit, and she's still alive. She ends up on all fours, trying to crawl out of the living room. The brothers go back outside. They open the trunk of their car and they reload the shotgun. Eric is unable to kill his mother, so Lyle fires the last shot pressed against his mother's left cheek. My take is, this is horrible. It's a gruesome crime, but this is a crime of hatred. This is not a crime of greed. And, and like that, to me, supports the abuse defense, whatever you want to call it. We're not going to call it the abuse excuse because no. that's what that, Alan fucking oh, Dershowitz called it to get on television. What happened to that man? I, I, he's being accused of abusing Virginia Guffrey as Jeffrey Epstein's best friend. She's well, brought, yeah. good. He claims it didn't happen, but, you know, whatever. It's just his abuse excuse. It's just his abuse excuse. Um, the, so the trial is not about whether or not they've done it, but it's about why they've done it. And I'm sitting here as just a spectator thinking if all you want is your parents' money— you don't shotgun them in the living room. In the face. You Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, you can put some, what is it, uh, antifreeze in there. Yeah. Orange juice Poison or something. Poison them or like, cut the brake line on the car. I mean, Push just, them off a boat or something. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. So Pam, the prosecutor, says, Pam, men can't be raped, says, the life insurance policy was $600,000. She thinks that's the motive. Uh, she presents the evidence that on August 24th, uh, one of the brothers purchased three Rolex watches and money clips. The day after, they called the lawyer to see if the will could be probated. I just thought that was a ridiculous. That's whenever someone dies, you start making those calls. Of I just went through that with my mother. You have to start dealing with the business of what it means when someone in the family. I did, but this know. is all about incriminate using yeah. this kind of evidence to incriminate the boys, even though it has nothing to do with the commission of the crime or their motives. Lyle allegedly told Doctor Ozeal that he suspected from his uncle that his dad's computer might contain another copy of the will that disinherited them. So. Lyle arranged allegedly to have the computer's hard disk erased. I don't know if this is ever proven. This is just testified uh, to. Dr. Ozeal said it. It's probably a lie. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times reporter who introduced us to this in the present says in this moment, which I think is pretty essential, we had a very different way of talking about crime in the 1990s. It was really the term super predator was popular. Like Hillary recently got raked over the coals during the election because she was a member of this culture. She was a politician. She was the first lady during this culture. People were acting as if crime was an epidemic and a, a scourge that must be talked at all costs. And there was a vigilante type um, string them up in the town square it was mentality. It a very law and order period yeah. in terms of national policy. It very much was. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is a this is a point where the the documentary starts to bounce kind of all over the place in a way that made it frustrating to annotate and take notes on. But Lyle, in this moment, in his interview in the present with the producer, says something that I had never heard before, which is allegedly evidence to to the manslaughter defense that I have not seen previously covered. And it's that while they were in jail prior to the trial, there was a jailbreak involving other prisoners, and as a result of that, um, the authorities confiscated a lot of material from everybody's cell. And from Eric Menendez's cell, they confiscated notes Lyle had sent him saying, please don't talk about the abuse. Let's not introduce the abuse as a defense. I don't want that being made public. Um, and Lyle presents this now as evidence of the amount of shame 
that men in general feel. Right. All of us who would be abused may feel it, but in men at that time in particular, when the response to you was always so homophobic and uh, uh, just from a different time period, that he wouldn't want to, that he didn't have a desire to use that even to try to avoid a life sentence or the death penalty. I think California still had the death penalty at the time. Um, anyway, uh, the prosecution finds out about those notes and attempts to have them buried. Buries them? Yeah. Prevents them from being um, used, puts a gag order on all of it, and hides the fact so that they can cover up the, the, the nature of the abuse. They're discussing this off the record, outside of courtroom, not as a defense, but as not using it as a defense, which... To the prosecution, if they were in any way interested in justice, which apparently they were not, mm -hmm. um, they could have used it to, oh, this is, you know, uh, this this is a, a, a revelation. This is new evidence in this case, and we should prosecute it in this way. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't still be prosecuted for manslaughter and what do they call it, special circumstances or whatever the the – it is it is the the way in which this particular mm -hmm. was had to do with with, uh, with perfect self defense perfect self defense it's right. about you um, crack that's i think what it is it's about yeah. the it was originally i think the intent was about um people who kill spouses who are abusing them wives i right. assume for the most part um who are being abused and who break down and finally kill their abuser there was a case this is seen as a as a way of sentencing because killing somebody is still killing somebody. No, you're not getting off. That's not what's happening. Nobody's the, ever asked for that. The question has never been, are the Menendez brothers innocent? That's not even what the they TikTokers are saying. They didn't even say that then. Um, the Burning Bed. Did you ever see that? It was a yeah. movie with Farrah Fawcett. Right. Yes. That was based on a real story where she set fire to her abusive husband's bed. And I remember growing up in a world where she was seen as a victim and kind of a heroine. You know, as a... Like this, and, and this then is this came world. along. Then this came along, and because they were boys, no way. Rich and boys, so well, there's boys no can't way. be raped. Yeah. So they must have wanted it, or whatever it is yeah. that we're coming up with. Why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they fight back? Why didn't they? You know, well, one of them was like five at the time, right. so maybe that had something to do with so it. So Dr. Vickery, the therapist that we met earlier, begins meeting with Eric weekly from 1990 until the trial in 1993, and Eric describes the abuse in detail to their therapist. Describes his strange reaction to the fact that his dad was continuing to take showers with them when they were in middle school and teenagers. And he tells Vickery that one week prior to the killings, he found out that his mother knew that his father had been molesting him and that that was the triggering event. Right, the inciting event. Discovery that both of the parents that were nobody on. was making any effort to protect them. Yeah. Uh, in the present day, Lyle tells the producers that he didn't want to testify and that a legal consultant on the case convinced him to do it because he'd seen so many cases like theirs, which I assume to mean cases of male sexual abuse that were not being reported. And he said, and don't be regretting this on death row. Yeah, exactly. Like, say something now. We're told that 93% of all pedophiles know their victims and 76% of the pedophiles are married men. And these facts are sort of dropped in along the way by the therapists that are being interviewed in the present. Um, June 93, Eric takes the stand and says the reason for the murder is that he told Lyle his dad had been molesting him. They testify that from the ages to six through eight, ages of six through eight, excuse me, they were abused. And then the LA Times reporter has to fire off his big mouth. And he says... Something that is both speculative, dismissive, and nonspecific, which is people lie when their lives are on the line. 
which may be true on the face of it. People may lie. I don't know what it has to do with this story, but sure. That does not address the evidence that is then introduced at trial. It None. does not address the cousin who says what, what the L.A. Times reporter wants us to believe is that there was a family-wide conspiracy to get these boys off that enlisted a cousin, an aunt, all of whom repeated having been told things about the abuse years before. Right, and the uncle who flew in, who had been estranged from the family, who flew in just to testify right. about what he knew about the boys being abused. Yeah, just for the sake of the trial. Like, that, he doesn't want to do take The other thing that I thought while he was shooting off his big, fat, stupid mouth, I thought it was interesting, his last name was Abramson. Was he the ex-husband of the their defense attorney? Like, I don't know. And trying, grinding some old grudge with her? Right, I don't I know. I don't know, but it was such an asshole thing to say. And I thought, if this was a woman mm-hmm. testifying about being sexually assaulted by right. somebody, would you say this? No. No. No, and that to me is homophobia. Yeah, absolutely. 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 It's it's it, yeah. I totally just re- agree. I mean, he just made me want to throw up. Yeah. I couldn't but, believe that he was a reporter for the LA Times. What a disgrace. <laughs> Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press. When a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? (laughs) 
The defense of Lyle and Eric Menendez called more than 50 5-0 witnesses, including friends, family, and more than a dozen experts offering evidence of the abuse. Lyle and Eric's cousin testifies that the boys confessed the abuse to him. Uh, one of the uncles, as you said earlier, flew across the world and said that back in the early 70s when he was visiting to test when he was visiting the family, he saw Lyle's father whisper something into his ear when he was a six-year-old boy that immediately made Lyle wet himself. So his father dragged him down the hall and hit him with a closed fist in the stomach. His uncle freaked out and said, you can't treat your son that way. And Jose's response was, he's my son. If you don't like it, you can leave the house. And so his uncle left. Um, Rebecca, one of the TikTokers we were introduced to at the top of the show, right. describes that the, says that the father took photographs of the boys nude from the waist down. Oh, this really? And the LA Times reporter's response says there's no evidence that the father took those pictures. So who took the pictures? So somebody else came in the house? And, and took the boys are young in these pictures. These boys are not oh, 14. Yeah. No, They're no. like these eight are, and nine. These are were, babies. This yeah. is child porn. Yeah. Who the fuck took these pictures? Why is nobody looking into, if it's not Jose, that somebody was abusing these boys? And the defense actually said that the boys obviously took the pictures of each other. The prosecutor. The mean. prosecutor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not the defense. Oh, my God. The defense certainly yeah. didn't say that. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's the question of why didn't the brothers mention the abuse to Dr. Oziel, who, who turned them in for murder? The TikTokers say the boys knew that their therapist was sharing everything with their parents. He was hired by their parents to deal with them after the incident of the burglary. Right, in Calabasas. And so they were, he was on, they never talked to him about anything they didn't want the parents to know about. Uh, and this is one thing that I realized when they started talking about the burglary again. Not any history of violence from either of these boys that, that we're told about. Not any history of fights. Nope. So you got to ask yourself, how do we go from that to shotgunning our parents, right? That nobody was tying up any animals in the or yard. if you're actually trying to build a legitimate case, you would certainly want to present evidence of such a thing. But since it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. they went with, they bought new watches. Yeah, they're rich. They're rich, so yeah. they should be murdered. Yeah. Totally. For saying this about their parents. June 1993, 24 days of jury deliberations. It's tied for the record for the longest deliberation. I think it was in California history. I wrote history, but that can't be right. Maybe. A mistrial is declared in the separate cases against both brothers. Six want to convict of first-degree murder. Six want to convict of manslaughter. Gil Garcetti... Eric Garcetti's dad was the district attorney at the time. He announces they will immediately be retried, as, and it will be a first-degree murder case. In the interim, the little trial known as the O.J. Simpson case unfolds. Huge black eye on the on the eye of the— um, For Mr. Garcetti, for who Mr. Garcetti. wanted to run for bigger offices. Right. Um, the prosecuting because team— Because that should be your primary consideration in prosecuting young men. right. Abuse their whole lives. The prosecuting team in L.A. is under pressure to really nail the job when it comes to the brothers, as we're told. This time, it's a different set of prosecutors. This time, there's no TV allowed in the second trial. It's the same judge, however. And this time, the testimony that Lyle had told his cousin when he was six or seven that his dad had been abusing him was excluded by the judge as being, quote, too remote. Same judge who let it in the first time now excludes it. And the judge removes manslaughter as a possible as a possible conviction. The verdict can either be first degree murder 
or second-degree murder. But a, a judgment of imperfect self-defense would reduce a murder charge to manslaughter, and that's not an option, as I understood it in the second trial. Right. So in light of this, in light of the 50 witnesses in the previous trial— the nude photographs of the boys, all of that stuff, because all of that was eliminated, the prosecutor in the second trial is legally allowed to get up and say, quote, there is no evidence of sexual abuse. And there's nothing the brothers can say to their defense, because, can present in their defense. Because they have excluded yeah. it all. March 20th, 1996. So what do you know without any ability to defend themselves? But 16 hours of deliberation later, the brothers are found guilty of first-degree murder. They're spared the death penalty, but sentenced to life without parole. So now we get up closer to the present and we meet a culture writer for BuzzFeed News, Alyssa Dominguez. And she is talking about um, kind of the entertainment culture around true crime in the 90s and how there were all of these, she calls them tabloid movies, made for TV movies, two hour sort of hack jobs, uh, many of them made about the Menendez brothers. And they established the narrative of the case, which is that maybe Jose Menendez was an asshole and maybe he was an overbearing bully and he was too hard on his boys and they snapped. But there's no real address of the sexual abuse. None of these depictions of the case in entertainment depicted as being a, right. as a, being a part of the story. Um, is He's an overbearing father who pushed them too hard. And then a few years ago, things started to shift. Uh, NBC was trying, the law and order verse, if you will, was trying to get into the kind of Ryan Murphy true crime limited series world. And they did a, a story about the Menendez brothers, yes. a limited series. Edie Falco, who's an Emmy winning, I think Tony winning actress, Love Edie played Falco. the defense attorney, Leslie Abramson, who was really widely caricatured at the time. I remember them playing her on oh Saturday Oh my God, Night the Live. attack of the, yeah. the, the, the depiction of this in the popular culture in the moment was nauseating. Yeah. Like I, I, there were people from Saturday Night Live and stuff who should be ashamed of themselves. I'm, but I'm really starting to think. I, I worry for the long arc of history because we have watched so many of these documentaries and so many of these Saturday Night Live sketches in the moment about these horrible stories really don't play well 20 years later. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you're like, you know, we saw it in the Brittany Murphy story. We saw them ridiculing her when she was clearly breaking down and having, you know, drug-induced problems and all this sort of stuff. And then I saw the the skit that they show, which has John Malkovich in it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which it was really, yeah. It, it was, but there was a general sort of prevailing kind of attitude about the whole thing of it just being... Mm -hmm. Oh, they're just, you know, putting this on this performance. And it was, have you seen this testimony? It was the, yeah. just heartrending. Um, and so everything starts to change. And we sort of get from that NBC movie to the TikTok moment that the New York Times was profiling to this documentary. And um, they ask Lyle, the producers of this special, ask Lyle what he wants his legacy to be. And he says, this is what happens when no one does anything about sexual abuse in the home. One of the things he said during the course of this that was the most moving to me was that despite the fact that all of these people, all of these 50 witnesses had something to say about their own ob observation at the time, none of them did anything in the moment, which he said was, while it was he appreciated them showing up to testify. Mm -hmm. It didn't really help. Like the time to do something was when they saw something. And I think this is an aspect of this story that doesn't get touched on, but I th I think it's caught up in the in the necessarily in the discussions of Me Too. 
I think Jose and, and, and Kitty were the wealthiest members of their family. And I think there oh, may have been yeah. some of these cousins were dependent upon them for support, and they used that leverage to buy silence, to buy secrecy, Maybe so. and to cover up what they were doing. Okay, I did a bit of research on a side note here. And because I will say, as I'm with you, I believe all of this. I believe the letter that is introduced at the end of the special is a little too good to be true. And allegedly, this is a letter that was in possession of their cousin, Andy, who did testify but this letter was allegedly found years later by Andy's mother after Andy's death. Now, the story with Andy is is sad. He developed um, addiction issues after the trial, which his family believes were associated with the trial. He took he died of an unintentional overdose of sleeping medication. There's a lot that could be true about that story. That's one of right. those official versions. His mother claims she found this letter, which they read in, in great detail, which is basically allegedly written days, I think weeks before the murder. And uh, it's Eric just saying, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can do all this sort of stuff. There's a lot of debate about this letter and whether it's legitimate. And I don't want us to go over the falls over this specific letter. But I think the story of Andy is a very sad one. And he was another member of that family who felt like there was nothing he could do. He was a child when he was being told this. But some of the other people that were testifying were not children. They were adults. And yeah. They, they didn't do anything to stop it. Yeah, that's about continuing to pursue this legally. Yeah. I think that um, Governor Newsom should let these boys out of prison. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever that means. Clemency, pardon, whatever it is. Time like, served. Time served. They have certainly they have certainly paid for yeah. the, the crime that they did commit, at mm -hmm. least. While it's not life without parole, I obviously don't think that was ever warranted. Yeah. Um. But whatever the case is, they've been in prison for 30-something years, 20-something mm -hmm. years. I, I, I don't know. A long time. Um, and I think they should be set free. Yeah. Like, if we do more appeals, whatever, yeah, okay, sure. I would like for them to be out to be advocates for um, the abused mm -hmm. while they have the opportunity to do that and maybe make something of their lives that have been taken away from them by these – Absolutely. This gets back to something we have talked about repeatedly on this, the idea that somehow it is getting a conviction is more important than getting it right. We have got to fix that. Mm -hmm. Like it happens again and again and again. This time, even with rich white boys, mostly it's poor people and minorities and people of you know who are right, already yeah. um having enough difficulty in the world but we convict people because we're trying to get our case count up or mm -hmm. to get you know to get a conviction Become mayor eventually or yeah. whatever it is yeah. but not for the reason of getting it right i yeah. am just sick of that being the narrative for the public side of this. Like, I don't know if you... The, the, I, there are two things I want to ask you, and I don't know how much time we have left, so I'm going to ask you this first. Where were you emotionally during this trial? What did it feel like? You were watching this as a, as a younger gay man, right? Were you seeing homophobia in the moment as it was unfolding? Did, were, your friend, were you talking about it with your gay friends? Everybody was so... It was so horrific. Mm -hmm. The... um. The, the, the stories that these boys were telling and the question really was at the time very much what the um, the the professor the Columbia professor was saying it was do you believe them right was like do you believe these stories and I I, I feel 
I could be wrong because it's been a while, but I feel that my response in that moment was I cannot think that they would be that these that they would be capable of performance at this level. The testimony yeah, in particular to yeah. do the te- to testify to these facts yeah. in this way. I just think even a really accomplished actor would have a difficult time sustaining that for hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Like I believed them because I just didn't believe they could fake what they were, yeah. what, what I was seeing. And everybody, mm-hmm. they, but there was this sort of prevailing kind of, you know, they they were just rich boys and stealing. I, I, I the the real attitude in the country was they were they just wanted the money. Yeah, it it plays now like a weird channeling of the Reagan era rage and 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 uh, law and order thing, but also a backlash against Reagan era affluence. That's how it plays for me now. Like we we were transitioning into the Clinton years, sort of, and it's like the rich need to be punished, and they were probably spoiled, and but it's like how many spoiled kids? It was it's the viciousness of the crime that should tell you there's way more going on here than two boys who wanted money. There's just But it was the viciousness of the crime that really colored people's reaction. And I think that you can also take this. This is what I I was trying to play devil's advocate, not necessarily, but put myself in the heads of people who disagree with me. I think there are a lot of them, the Alan Dershowitzes of the world, believe the abuse was really happening, but they can't bring themselves to say, I don't think that's good enough. I still think you shouldn't under any circumstances, shotgun your parents. I, I think the brutality of the crime— I believe we can all agree yeah, to that. I yeah. think that it was the decision of fevered minds. Mm-hmm. These were young men who were mentally disturbed. How could you not be after being raped by your father yeah. from the time you were five years old yeah. on a regular basis? Like, I just—I'm not sure how you could be anything other than somebody who's mentally disturbed. Yeah. Like, and how you could not— have come to believe that there is no escape from these people. Because what that prosecutor's heart, horrific, shameful statement, I, I think what, what's underneath it is the belief, the false belief, that men are not affected by rape the way a woman would be, psychologically. Yeah, it's just, you know, a little grab ass yeah, it's or just whatever. whatever. They'll just, men are hypersexual anyway, they won't give a shit. It's, it's crazy. And I, I remember my in my early work trying to tackle this idea of w- what sexual abuse visited against men really was doing to the culture. There was a character in the Snow Garden who had undergone it, who was inspired in part by the Menendez brothers. And we had no real deep or sophisticated understanding of this was happening. Like the Tyler Perry interview that he mentions is pretty fucking recently that Tyler Perry was able to go publicly and say, this is an epidemic and it's happening. I also think it's a driver of a lot of homophobia and really angry men men who are not actually sexually conflicted but were subjected to sexual abuse as young people yes by men who that is their conception of homosexuality is is a crime without consent that was they were subjected to and i don't think we do enough talking and about that and that's the thing with rape it's like it's seeing it as sex yeah is the mistake of rape rape is violence rape yeah. is rape is a violent attack it just happens to be expressed in a sexual way right. but it's not about sex that yeah. is not the nature of it probably this was about Control, control, and power, power, sadism. and that sort of thing with that with that horrible man. And on the the flip side of the, for the children, it is a massive betrayal of trust. Their inability to trust anyone, mm-hmm. to even tell anyone, right, is ultimately the thing that is the most revelatory. Was the revelation that 
What was revelatory was the revelation? It was wow. the revelation. Pardon me while we edit that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, we're leaving it we're in. Gonna, a little redundant to repeat points made earlier at a previous time. Um, but the, the revelation that um, their mom knew. That's that, that was the inciting incident. That was yeah. the, the thing that really set the clock on this hideous response that even their mom betrayed them. Even their mom could not be trusted because they didn't tell each other. Mm-hmm. They were protecting everyone. If you tell your brother, I will kill your mother. If you tell, I, I will kill your brother. If you tell your mother, I will kill your mother. That was what he was telling those boys. Mm-hmm. And they didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. They were protecting her, and they realized that she wasn't protecting them. Mm, mm -hmm. And that kind of betrayal of trust is, I just think that's tectonic. Mm -hmm. Any fissures that exist would just simply crumble. You would Mm -hmm. just fall to pieces in, in that kind of revelation. So was it a bad decision? Yes, absolutely. This is not the way to go. Right. Not recommending that you shotgun your parents, even if they're abusing you. You know, I want you to be able to trust me and people, other people, other grownups mm-hmm. to tell us so that we can do something to help you. Right. Yes, I think that's the case. But then we have to set up a system that's about trying to help those people. Yeah. The other thing we have to do, I mean, talk about the case of not listening to the victims, mm-hmm. not believing the victims, um, is we have got to uh, deal with the epidemic of misapprehension of responsibility in prosecution. Mm-hmm. I just think frivolous prosecution is a hideous um, boil cancer, mm-hmm. if you will, but tell on me the what American you mean justice by, system. By frivolous prosecution. I mean prosecuting for the sake of getting the win and right. not for the sake of finding the truth. I think that a defense attorney has a particular job and theirs is to get their client off and whatever that takes, even if their client did it, if they can't prove it, then they shouldn't be convicted. But I think that the the, the, the trust that we have placed in public officials, in prosecutors, is that they will be the, not, not trying to get the, the largest case count, but that they will actually be the guardians of this institution, that they will go beyond, above and beyond, to make sure that they are doing everything in their power— mm-hmm. To find the truth and to do the right thing in a situation, not just to get the conviction, suppressing evidence. If there's ever an instance when a prosecutor needs to suppress evidence in order to win their case or hide evidence, then the case should either be dropped or the prosecutor should be fired or prosecuted. Mm-hmm. I think we should. I think it should get to that kind of extent because that's about manipulating the truth. That's not about finding it. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm horrified. We did that that sort of lighthearted story. It turned it out turned out to be about um, oh, what's that television show um, on HBO with the, the the grouchy old guy from who used to write for Saturday Night Live? Um, oh, oh, Larry David, right. uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb your enthusiasm. Um, uh, I think it was Long Shot was the name of the special. The, the the episode, but it was about that guy getting off for murder because the um. Because there was the footage they were shooting of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm at the Dodgers game at the time. Episode 128 of our podcast, if you want to know what we're talking about. He was trying to get—and meanwhile, 
the prosecutor from Los Angeles, the woman who was prosecuting the case, did everything she could, including ignore the fact that he had now an alibi Mm -hmm. to prosecute somebody who was clearly not guilty of the crime. She continued the prosecution even after they had proved that he couldn't possibly have done it because here is footage of him being somewhere else. She still didn't stop. Mm -hmm. Like, that's inexcusable. She should be fired and possibly prosecuted, Mm -hmm. not sent to prison, but have her legal license revoked and... You know, her financial future maybe made a little more perilous um, through huge fines. Like, I just think that's—I think there's something seriously wrong with that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it manifests in so many different ways. And we need to be able to trust these institutions Mm -hmm. to do—at least to make the effort to do the right thing. People are going to get stuff wrong. Mm -hmm. That happens. That I can forgive. But to intentionally— ruin these take these young men's lives away from them mm-hmm. by suppressing evidence and then getting up and saying there is no evidence she of needs sexual to abuse at least apologize publicly for having said that uh, i mean all it's of one those of those people things. should be and i think this is all i'm going to say um if the individuals involved in this don't believe a reckoning is coming google someone's name linda fairstein and i'll just leave it at that and you can go Google Linda Fairstein and find out what I'm talking about. But she was one of the prosecutors involved in the Central Park yeah. uh, rape case. Have a look. Have a look. Have a look. Um, all right. I knew that was going to be a live one. I said it was going to be a big episode, and it was a big episode. And I know you're very passionate about it. And I, I am. I feel like you are being vindicated. I really do. I feel like you're being vindicated. And I agree with you, but you, are, you have been far more... Um, courageously vocal about your opinions about this case because it's amazing. From the start. From the start. I just really have never bought this. I just thought it was, uh, well, all the things that I just got through saying. I don't need to say it again. We don't God, need to say it again. We've devoted a whole hour or so hour. to talking about how I feel about it. So what's coming up next? What um, lighthearted, fun thing are we oh, going to do yes. now that we're done with that? We invited our party people to weigh in. We're really kicking off the Halloween season in our next episode, and we've asked people on our The Dinner Party Show's Facebook page to tell us, what's the scariest thing you've ever experienced they could not be easily explained. <laughs> and we got a lot of answers. And um, I think I know mine. Do you know yours? I'm going to have to think about it. You're going to have to think about it. Okay. Well, until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.